Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Another important topic coming up today, Hilde. This podcast entitled Challenges for Hispanic Patients Facing Lung Cancer, Confronting and Overcoming Barriers. And you're bringing on some wonderful guests to discuss the topic. A returning guest is Dr. Francine Jacobson, Doctor of Diagnostic Radiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And we're very happy to have as well Kevin Salinas, a fourth-year medical student at Harvard who is very much focused on the subject of challenges for Hispanic patients, he being of Hispanic origin. So it's my pleasure to turn the microphone over to you, Hildy, so you can begin the conversation. I'm hoping this will launch a series of podcasts where we're looking at various communities and um, asking questions about what barriers exist and not just what barriers exist, but how can we uh, do something about it? But first, we have to learn something about those communities before we can find solutions. So today we're going to talk about Hispanic Americans or Hispanic Latino Americans um, who face a number of challenges when it comes to access to health care and to medical treatment. It was interesting to me that the predictions are that around the year 2060, uh, the Hispanic Latino population will grow to be about 31%. So about a third of our population will be of Hispanic, Latino uh, background. So it's a significant number of people. And even though just like women <laughs> represent 50% or more of the population, we don't necessarily have the power, but I won't get into that today, I promise. So um, I would like to start with one of our guests, Kevin Salinas. Thank you very much for uh, joining. And um, so, Tell us a little bit about your interest in the Hispanic community. Right. So for me, uh, for context, I'm currently a fourth year in medical school over at Harvard, graduating in a few months. Um, and for me, it was honestly my own community that inspired me to pursue this path in the first place. So I grew up in a place called McAllen, Texas, the city of about city or town, depending on who you ask, of about 120, 150,000 people. Uh, in, down in, in South Texas, and it borders Mexico. And my family's of Mexican origin, you know, grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. And um, growing up, uh, oftentimes in our case, because of, of language access, we would often find ourselves across the border in Mexico seeking care. You know, my mother to, to this day speaks not a lick of English. Um, and so for her, it was concerning at times not being able to feel heard or seen during our encounters, uh, you know, clinical encounters in the U.S., and so for her comfort, for our family's well-being, it sort of became our norm, you know, oh, we're going to the doctors. And it just, in my mind, I just immediately knew that meant a quick trip to Mexico to see someone and and all that, you know, a doctor's visit can entail at that point. It was there when we were in the waiting rooms, I would see people wearing like McAllen High School t-shirts or, you know, James Bonham Elementary t-shirts. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I know where those places are. They're also, you know, across the border in the on the U.S. side of things. And in conversations with some of these families, it became apparent that, you know, it wasn't just my family doing this. Other people also had 
language access issues. Uh, some people just didn't have insurance in the U.S., and so they were going to Mexico to pay out of pocket. Um, and some people really needed to see a specialist, and the wait list on the U.S. was months long, if not like years long. In those situations, paying out of pocket to see a provider in Mexico was a way to sort of skip a lot of that wait time. Sort of growing up with these experiences, I developed a really early interest in, honestly, healthcare inequities, um, and as well as medicine. And I was really lucky in that within our public health um, public school system, we had a career oriented magnet high schools. And so when the time came for me to make the decision of, hey, where do I want to go to high school? I, I knew really quickly that I wanted to go to the health careers oriented magnet high school. And that's where I got to start a lot of this early exposure into medicine. Because again, it, it's, there's no one in my family in healthcare. Otherwise, it would have never been on my radar. So what it meant was instead of having electives or additional electives in like art or sports or things like that, our electives were things like maternal health and nutrition and clinical laboratory sciences. And that's what we were doing with our elective time in high school. And so that became a, a really sort of formative experience for me. And then I got to continue some of that equity work that got me interested in medicine in the first place in college, doing some interpreting at a free clinic. Um, I also did some work expanding NICU, so neonatal intensive care unit access in rural China through a medical nonprofit that's based in Hong Kong called Children's Medical Foundation. Um, and that was also really formative work for me, just seeing how how we can empower under-resourced communities to sort of expand access to care to people who otherwise might not get it. And so that led me to medical school. And so now I think a lot of my work today has focused on both racial and ethnic inequities in health in healthcare systems. So for example, disparities you might see in terms of patient reported outcomes after a radical prostatectomy or uh, preferences of that, patients. That's when the prostate has been surgically removed, right? Correct. Yes. Just for uh, our entire audience may not necessarily know that word, but right. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I Keep appreciate going. it. No, so, you know, sometimes we enter this medical training sphere and it's easy to forget what, you know, words people would use outside of the walls of a hospital. And also done some work with uh, populations with limited English proficiency or in particular Spanish preference. And again, that's a, a cause that's near and dear to my heart as well. I'd like to jump in here just to point out that you just proved something that I think is valuable for us to all remember. We aren't always communicating the way we think when we say something, because the understanding is the person who we're talking to. And the fact that it requires thinking about what's the audience or the listener, what the listener is bringing to it to understand what you just said. That was an excellent job of an example. You brought up and also gave us this great example <laughs> of issues around communication. So, for example, if your mother goes to a clinic, the question is, what kind of help does she have if there's not a family member, which I think would have to be the case? You know, what's going to happen to her um, if, if, uh, if there's not someone around to speak Spanish? So... That's a really great point. And I think it's also a big part of the reason why my family still lives where they do, just because they they can sort of continue to have their lives right as as they are. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit about you, but you also describe, I think, the important aspects of of some of the issues in the Hispanic community. As you said, it sounds like you you um your mother or your family and maybe close relatives stay in this community because they're able to keep their culture, they're able to keep their language, uh, they're able to keep their belief, their religion, et cetera, et cetera. They've got 
that little bubble that they're living in um, works well, unless they have to go to some kind of medical center that brings up, you know, some of these issues. My right. daughter's a sign language interpreter, so that's a whole other arena for people who go to um, medical settings and communications is is the you know the issue, the hallmark there. One of our former board members um, works at Mass General Hospital, and um, she was working as a uh, patient navigator. That's really one of the questions. If there, are, if it's a large enough center and a large enough hospital, perhaps there are uh, patient navigators who speak Spanish or other languages who can come in and help translate um, for for the medical staff. Right, right. No, it's a good point. And I think it's it's challenging at times because there's a variety of roles that can exist in a hospital, right? So you might have, have someone who's a patient navigator and their task really is to follow a patient through every stage of their care. And then in other situations, you might have someone who's an interpreter who might just be present for the actual encounter itself. And so that experience might be a little bit different with a little bit less guidance, perhaps. Uh, and a little bit more like emotional distance as well during the encounter. So I think there's a variety of ways to address it. Like you've mentioned, having a patient navigator can be a very comprehensive way to do so. But, you know, there's a there's a like a spectrum of experiences, I think, that come with encountering the healthcare system in the U.S. for patients who, who might not necessarily speak English as a, as a primary language. I can tell you that at Brigham and Women's Hospital, we no longer allow family members to interpret. And I've myself been involved in cases where it has led to a very upsetting experience, even for the family, because there are differences in cultures about what is told to an elder about the care that they're going to get. And the amount of pain that somebody might have during a procedure that's done with a needle may upset the younger person who's doing the interpreting in the sense that we're hurting their elder in a way that probably the elder is fine. Um, with age, people get a little more stoic about a needle and stop fainting. And those differences have caused us to use interpreter services. Now, interpreter services have also changed a lot, I think, in pandemic. And this is just because you can have the Internet provide the translation for you. When you go onto the hospital site, there are pages that will let you pick what language you would like to see it in. Now, that language is going to be the same problem that we have. Do you know what a prostate gland is? In that it can only bring it down to not necessarily things that person who's reading it understands. I'm not sure the translations aren't, aren't perfect. But there's also translation that way that is available through the internet, it's almost like having the Zoom person in your encounter be the interpreter from the uh, service that provides the interpretation with, and translation for the parties back and forth, almost like you're at the UN, but you have the interpreter. Kind of unsatisfying from the standpoint of it just gets you the words translated. If I want to, as a physician, give somebody the information of what you have to do before the procedure, like take your medications with a little bit of water and don't eat and, you know, the kinds of very simple things, it's fine. But I think it's very difficult in that situation to also realize what culture within that language the person is coming from. It occurs to me as, as we've all been talking about this, we could spend this whole 
podcast on communications because you know if they don't let your your relatives speak, I, I could very well envision some older person who goes to um, an appointment with their uh, you know with a younger relative and some stranger comes in and says something i would imagine ninety uh, percent i'll say or more would look over to the family member to see what their take is on it i think again it, we could spend a lot of time on this because it's so very interesting especially with the language the idioms the cultural differences if you're from puerto rico if you're from Mexico, if you're from Spain, of what wherever you happen to be from, the language may be slightly different or the you know culture may be different. So just trying to address that, I guess we could just take an overarching piece from what we're talking about, which is it's really important to make sure there's someone who speaks that language at some level during these appointments. Clearly, there are other issues that face the Hispanic population. One you know, one that's a really big one um, has to do with, especially with a lot of uh, immigration, but um, it's around poverty and the lack of health insurance. So uh, thoughts about that and what could be done, what should be done, what might be done. Where are we on addressing poverty? Are we going to solve everything today? Language, poverty, gee whiz, what, what a podcast, right? But uh, <laughs> I would just say that there could probably be a whole podcast series just trying to unpack the different layers of challenges that exist. But, you know, to answer your question about poverty and, and sort of the, the issue of lack of health insurance that accompanies that, uh, we know that there are disparities in healthcare that exist for Hispanic patients specifically, and as they relate to lung cancer as well, um, that are directly tied to insurance status and socioeconomic status. Right. Um, Hispanic adults are less likely than other Americans to have health insurance in general. Uh, and as a consequence, they receive preventative medical care a lot less often than you know their counterparts do. And uh, in the U.S. alone, we know that 24 percent of Hispanics live below the poverty line and 35 percent have less than high school education. And if we sort of extrapolate from that, we also have data to show that high school education or just educational attainment status in general is closely linked to health literacy level. And so we're working with a lower baseline health literacy as well, uh, lower frequency of encounters with the healthcare system, increased financial strain. These are all things that don't really paint a nice picture when it comes to healthcare outcomes on the long, and you know, in the long term. This also then leads to a greater likelihood of, of suffering from challenges when it comes to preventative measures such as smoking cessation, and then also then consequentially increased. Um, rates of, of, of lung cancer and other cancers and other sort of chronic illnesses as well. And so I think in terms of thinking of how we can address this specifically, there's definitely not, you know, I wish I could just snap my fingers and solve the problem at its core. But we know that when patients encounter providers from backgrounds that are similar to theirs, whether it be based on culture, uh, race, ethnicity, or language, they they themselves feel like they're getting better care, and and the the data that we have demonstrates that they are getting better care, and they're gonna we're gonna see things like improved health outcomes and patient satisfaction. So I think if we really really want to do our patients a service, and and you know the U.S. is a very diverse country, the best thing that we can do is try to get as many people from these different bubbles or different communities into the healthcare workforce as we can, 
um, to start addressing a lot of these issues and be able to have frank conversations with people from these different populations, right? Like I'm very open to keeping conversations real and colloquial if need be with a patient who, who sort of reflects the background where that might seem appropriate. And I've done that, you know, in the primary care clinic, I've done it in the hospital and it's opened so many conversations that I, I just wonder whether they would have even happened had, had I sort of not been like, hey, so tell me what's going on, you know, sort of proactively in Spanish when I walk into a patient room. I think that would be a, a really big step in sort of trying to dismantle some of these inequities as they stand. What I would say is being real and being down to earth with someone um, helps level the um, disparity between the doctor as God and the patient as shut up and do what you're told. To me, that's another aspect, not only about communication, but empowering patients to be able to ask questions, to be able to um, have concerns about treatment options, um, and to be able to be treated with respect rather than I told you this is the this is the way you need to go. You know, just having those kinds of conversations are important. I have a question for Kevin, or just to get some thoughts and anyone can answer. We, we know about the need for more personnel, medical people from various communities, including Hispanic community. Do you have any thoughts on how we can improve the ratio of doctor to patient, how we can bring more people into the field, uh, excite people, and also make it available for them, the, the training that's so expensive and difficult? Right. No, I think it's 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 a very big ask for sure. And I think the earlier we start, the better, because as we get higher up the sort of training pipeline, I think the hoops that we have to jump through become a lot and a lot more difficult to to sort of get through. So I think having early exposure, you know, middle school, high school enrichment programs led by healthcare professionals, residents, fellows, we see a lot of that now where, you know, places like MGH or the Brigham will have programs with local um, high schools in Boston, where there might be a large population of students from backgrounds underrepresented in medicine, and they'll sort of have little workshops for a weekend or for a week or for a summer, where they're sort of getting exposed to the field and getting excited about it too, and working alongside trainees and who might come from these backgrounds as well. And so I think just being able to see yourself and imagine yourself in, in that position is so important. And the earlier we can do that, the better. I mean, for me, it was my own high school experience going to a career-oriented high school. Um, and so I definitely see the value in that. And then I think just continued visibility celebration and, and like formal and informal mentorship is so important. You know, not having physician parents myself, there's so many times I wish I could just shoot, you know, my parent to text like, hey, what should I do for, you know, this opportunity or, you know, for this next stage of training? And obviously my parents are just like, you know, we're, we're just as, as um confused about this black box as you are, but we wish we could help. Please talk to people. And so I think that can be a little bit confusing. And and I think it could lead a lot of people to frustration and, and, and sort of not necessarily pursuing opportunities to the fullest that they might otherwise. And so I think just visibilizing the communities, uh, having mentorship as well can be super important. If we could do one thing in this podcast with Kevin's help that might actually make a difference, maybe it is to work at having those students who are in those career programs in school have better pathways to work directly with the medical community and come in and provide that culturally sensitive um, translation and observation that they, that they can provide because they already are experts in the domain of the culture. And that would be part of their educational program so that we wouldn't have to wait for them to get all the way through their medical training, they can right now as teenagers be helpful in doing that. And I think that's a hallmark of the generation that's coming up now, that they would 
enjoy that. And maybe in return, we can also deputize those students to help us keep people from taking up smoking among their peers and help people to stop smoking and be more comfortable in getting health care within the American system. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, Upstage Lung Cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. I remember in high school or whatever, there were like six professions, right? You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you know, you're a teacher. But within the domain of healthcare, there are numerous jobs. And for a young Hispanic person who may be, um, you know, interested, but whose family is living in poverty, um, some of them will find a way, yes, to medical school. You know, we've got all the movies and the music comes up. Yes, they've done it. Rocky. Um, but there are other kids who just would be put off with that option. However, if they if if in the schools there was more of a conversation, less algebra and more conversations <laughs> about um, you know opportunities within the healthcare system that that are accessible and uh, you know I think at all levels it's all levels that you want to see people that can understand you and have some common experience with you. That was one of the things I was thinking about. The other thing, and and I don't, this is not my area of expertise, but as a psychologist, what I do know is that all the early psychological studies were on men. And therefore they said, and most were white men. So most of those studies that we know about various psychological principles from long ago, um, they've just, been told that they generalize to everybody. So women are the same. And now we know that's just not true. So uh, the question is also there about whether or not Hispanics are included in research and um, considered in terms of their own background and training and, and uh, education. So I don't know what either of you know about um, that kind of. Um, um, inclusion. Stump the stars. That's me. <laughs> I, I will say, I do think that in the era that we're living in now, there's a lot more awareness about the importance of having diverse populations in research. So for example, as part of a class this past month, we visited some really big names in industry, a lot of them leading um, some major studies for new drug development or vaccine development, or have done so over these past few years. And, and it's very clear from their approach to recruiting populations for their studies, that they're taking this into account, that they're really ramping up recruitment in places where they know that they might need a little bit more representation for X study. 
um, and maybe slowing down recruitment at places where they already have a lot of people signed up. And so I think moving forward, it's something that, you know, uh, the scientific community is very much aware of. I think historically it hasn't necessarily been the case, as you sort of mentioned just now, Hildy. Um, but I am hopeful about what the future holds in terms of, of having representation in these studies and, and really knowing that whatever therapies or whatever preventative sort of products we're developing are, are going to be both safe and effective in, in, in a wide variety of communities and not just one specific patient population. I've spoken to a number of pharmaceutical company um, advocates in, 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 in those areas, and there's a tremendous interest now in diversity and inclusion and people of color and making sure that they are more of a part, not just of research, um, but also of in terms of um, receiving the drugs that are coming out and being a part of, of trials, because traditionally Hispanics were not really included um, very much at all in these clinical trials. And that, that brings me to the other thing about we, we didn't cure poverty. However, um, it's really important that um, I can't give you like and say 100%, but I would say the majority of large pharmaceutical companies have a community relations uh, wing where they help people who cannot afford the medication to get what they need. And that most people don't know that. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies have gotten such a bad rap um, as being, you know, money grubbing and all this kind of stuff. But these community outreach um, efforts to make sure people can get what they need, is it's really important. And it certainly shows you the other side of people who spend their lives developing new new drugs to, um, you know, to help people, especially in lung cancer and other cancers. There's another area that came to mind and that in different cultures have different points of view. And so one of those is health care beliefs, like whatever that means to either of you within the culture, within a family, what are your beliefs? You know, some saying, oh, you don't run to a doctor every time you have a headache versus you have a headache, get to a doctor. So um, <laughs> um, I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of maybe um, in the Hispanic community. And again, we are talking about a diverse group of people, but I'm concerned that we no longer have the connection to the home and the culture and what happens not in the medical setting. And this it crosses all cultures because we don't have the house calls and the pharmacist isn't um, taking care of the headache without you going beyond that to the doctor. Um, and when it comes to cultures that are very different and self-contained, I'm afraid that what we're doing now is we're going to take the information out of them. But I think it's just as important for us to learn how to be there in their culture with them so that they can actually go through the whole process. We all have taken, if you've taken the number of drugs, you've taken something that made you feel really terrible before it fixed your problem. Um, and that experience happens outside the healthcare setting. Doctors are very happy not to be part of your um, after effects. I think that these populations need more support sent into their home and and probably through into their community. Kevin, wasn't there something that you have that is a very unique thing in your community of function that actually becomes 
uh, how to help carry through. I forget the the term for the person who um, the role. It's a role in the community that I had um, never heard of. Right. There is uh there have been some approaches to really sort of getting. I guess a little bit more personal with patients and making sure that they're taking care of in all aspects of, of their lives and in ways that really tie into health, which is uh, the promotoras. So this is, if trying to translate it literally, it'd be like a promoter, but not like a club promoter. This would be someone who's really helping <laughs> patients, right? Uh, someone who's really um, helping patients, you know, navigate the healthcare system, navigate any sort of social services that they might need, it sort of ties in, you know, making sure that patients receive language and coordinate care, because this would be someone from their own community who could speak to them in their own sort of like language, very specifically, right? So for example, in my case, it would be somebody from the Mexican-American community. And it also sort of ties in this like community or like family-oriented approach to seeking care. And so they would meet regularly with people from these communities, encourage them to participate in things like education, health, job training, human services, uh, as well as housing and youth and elderly programs. And so it's a very, very well thought out role. And it's an approach that's been taking in some community health centers to sort of further engage their, their patients from these backgrounds. What's going on in medical education at this point, especially in terms of fighting discrimination? Again, I don't think we can wipe out let's take physicians for a moment, their, their biases or their points of view uh, about their uh, patients, especially those working in a hospital who may not have an ongoing PCP role or relationship. But what, what, what are they taught? What's being talked about these days in, in the medical school training about being aware of diversity and, and respect and all that? Right. I, I will start off by saying that we do have data just based on studies to show that, you know, every provider has their own implicit biases and, and these implicit biases do affect the clinical decisions that we make and the care that we ultimately provide patients. And this is despite, you know, any implicit bias training that we might try to provide at any stage of, of one's career or training. Um, that being said, as a medical student, some things that stand out are the fact that when we have our earliest clinical encounters, we see our first patient in the first year. Uh, part of the history that we take is this section called the social history. And so that requires asking a patient, you know, about their occupation, whether they have any pets, what are their hobbies, are they married, what's, what's their living situation like, um, and are there any substances that they use, uh, again, in a no-judgment kind of way, just really soliciting information to better care for them. Um, and so that might include things like tobacco and alcohol as well as other substances. That being said, I think it's something that we focus on a lot very, very early on during our training. And then in practice, as we sort of move along towards later stages in medical school, and, and I'm sure maybe even in future stages of training, uh, efficiency becomes a little bit more of the priority. You know, the appointments become shorter and shorter. As a med student, I might have 45 minutes to an hour with a patient. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's very rare these days to have that sort of length of time with an actual physician. 12 minutes and less. It's probably less now. That's what it was as a standard. I know I'm interrupting you, but I, but that's important. Like if you only have 12 minutes, you've got to get to the point and get moving. So it's hard to be kind of um, chatty and kind and thoughtful and 
I'm getting no kickback from this, but one of my mentors in uh, graduate school, postdoctoral studies, was uh, Elliot Mishler, a hero. And he wrote a book, uh, you might be interested in Kevin, and if anyone's interested in language and communication, especially in the medical world, it was called The Discourse of Medicine. And it's brilliant because he documented conversations between doctors and patients. Very important. I know I interrupted you, but um, <laughs> trying to think about what what is being taught. Yeah, no, no worries. And I think it's important, right? Like, I don't know exactly how long it would it would sort of take. I, I'm, I'm currently on the other end of things. So I'm like, oh, I get all this time. It's great. But I have this sort of thought in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, this can't last forever. I'm not going to have all of this time to engage with the patient. And so that's a little bit on the back of my mind. We also learn a lot about social determinants of health, which is this sort of like buzzword now, I think, in, in healthcare, in terms of thinking about the way that these non-medical factors might influence health outcomes for an individual. So these are things like income, uh, education, um, whether somebody's employed or not, what are their, their working conditions like? Do they have access to, to good quality food? things of that nature as well. And all of those things are really interesting. They're great. They're wonderful. They're good for research. What I'm wondering is it's like the God complex of physicians when they come in to see the patient, whatever their background and all of the social, um, you know, social variables are, the doctor being aware that for most people, especially when you're at your most vulnerable and you're never as vulnerable as you are when you've got some kind of a diagnosis like lung cancer or cancer. Um, that's just your rock. And I don't know that you can teach this. You can only create awareness in a medical school education of being aware to you know, come in um, and try to bring your humanity with you. The best doctors do that. I know loads of extraordinary, wonderful doctors. I'm, I'm in no way painting a dark picture, but I just think that that's really an essential ingredient. But I want to thank both of you for this amazing conversation. There's so much more we could be talking about, and I hope we, we will all gather again together. Kevin, you had something you wanted to say to our listening audience. Right. Um... Bueno, lo que quiero decir es que esta profesión es una profesión muy bonita que nos permite cambiar muchísimas vidas. No siempre va a ser fácil, o sea, si como cualquier eh, profesión viene con sus dificultades y sus momentos difíciles, pero el apoyo está ahí, existe, y cualquier persona que quiera cambiar la salud de su comunidad o de las personas que verdaderamente le importan, pues se las recomiendo y, y pues sí. Yeah, what I said in Spanish was essentially a, a big a couple of words of encouragement, I think, for anyone uh, who speaks Spanish who might be considering entering the medical profession, saying that it's a beautiful profession with the potential to impact so many lives um, and that I highly recommend it. You know, it does have its difficult moments, but the support is there. And, you know, keeping things honest, because I think that's important, informed consent going into any sort of process is, is a big thing. But I do think it's a very, very rewarding profession. And that's essentially what I wanted to get across. Well, it's clear to me that the medical profession needs you. You uh, exhibit all the, the characteristics I see as being a wonderful and gracious doctor, just in the same way that Francine is just, you both real human beings and caring people. And so, you know, you talk about, it's a caring profession, uh, medicine. And so it's an art. And part of that art is is having this kind of compassion and kindness and 
being real. So I cannot imagine better guests, Kevin Salinas and Francine Jacobson and my partner in crime, Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening today. Keep listening. And if you haven't heard all of our podcasts, they're all available on every podcast platform. So today's the day. It's going to snow in Boston tomorrow. God knows when you'll hear this, but it'll be snowing somewhere So or raining. So take a listen. Thank you. And we'll see you again soon. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.